Before we kick this show off, let's hear a word from our sponsors. So it's been a full season for the Under Pressure Outdoors crew in the Hasmore Outdoor Products Silent Seat. And let me tell you, they're worth every penny. And here are some reasons why. Number one, you can't beat the comfort level. Number two, they don't hold in moisture like rain or sweat. Number three, they completely fold out of the way when you stand up, giving you a full range of motion in your climber. And number four, they cut down on your setup and breakdown times dramatically. Don't just take our word for it. Use offer code UPO15 and get 15% off your silent seat and many other U.S.-made accessories for your climber today. You can find Hasmore Outdoor Products on Facebook and hasmore.net. That's H-A-Z-M-O-R-E dot net. And in the link in this podcast description. I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. Jordan, we got any new reviews this week? We do not, unfortunately. I know. People got to step their game up. Matt didn't change his name and write another one? No, I'm still Swanee Lover is the last one. <laughs> got to have a new IP address. Yeah. Got to get the kids a phone. Oh, man. Well, if you guys write some reviews, we'll read them off. And we even read off, what was that, a three-star the other day? A while back? Yeah, three-star was... This is, I mean, oh, yeah, that was the one about our audio quality. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. But I'll read them. I don't care. Give yeah. me your feedback. Gotta have something to grow. So, <clears throat> in the studio this evening, I've got uh, I got Jim in here with me. Yes, sir. I got Jordan. I'm here. Let's get it. We got old Sidney Curtis. I'm back, y'all. I'm your host, Will Krebs, and we're joined by uh, Ross. Ross, what is your last name? Lamoro. Ross Lamoro. Yes. Indeed. And what is your job title? So I am the site manager for Chinsegut Hill Historic Site, which is an antebellum home just north of Brooksville, Florida, that is managed by the Tampa Bay History Center, the museum that I work for for the last almost 15 years. Uh, we're a nice regional museum out of Tampa that about four years ago partnered with Hernando County, who were the stewards of this house, and today we partner with them in the day-to-day operation and maintenance of that house and so as the manager i am guiding tours working on historical research and interpretation uh, and the day-to-day maintenance of the house as well it's beautiful that's where we met yeah my wife and i went out there we found it online a uh, ton of florida history out there just interesting things i won't go into it ross might i know chance, but <clears throat> we did it's have a worthwhile trip we did have ross in uh some time ago back when it wasn't hot but I wasn't here that evening. I had, I had to work, so I missed that one, unfortunately. Yeah, Talked about the Seminoles. Yeah. Yeah, buckle up. That was a great one. Yeah. I'd have to go back and see what episode that was. Maybe Jordan can grab a hold of that and look back. Um, but we're back to talk some more history. Talk the history of the the uh, CCC, which is the Civilian Conservation Commission? Corps. Corps. Yeah. Civilian Conservation Corps. So this is a program that started out in the 30s to answer all the joblessness of the Great Depression. 
Franklin D. Roosevelt ran on a platform that eventually becomes what we know as the New Deal. And this was basically a monstrosity of a program uh, that, if happened today, there would be protests, picketers, uh, just abject terror at the, the cost. But using the, the eyes of the 30s, realizing that the Great Depression was, without a doubt, uh, the worst catastrophe economically in the history of our country and mostly the world, happening in 1929 and escalating over the next few years. But to answer this, FDR runs on a platform of providing assistance, um, anything from jobs to food to you name it. But the leading part of this was what he called ECW, Emergency Conservation Work. This would entail providing jobs to qualified young men uh, in a variety of manners, but overseen by the Department of Defense, or the War Department as it was called then, mostly the Army. What, the, what had occurred is after World War I, there was a rapid de-escalation and uh, reduction in force. The U.S. military and many, many officers, uh, both of the Navy and the Army particularly, were put on reserve status and kind of maintained uh, their rank structure, but with little training, little, little to do, and absolutely no pay. And in order, so this program is twofold. It is to kind of mobilize and uh, train certain officers of the military to keep them sharp in a non-war setting. But more importantly, to provide jobs and to stimulate the economy through local dollars staying right in, in general areas. I think the, the original age requirements were 18 to 25 as well, right? And then it was expanded like 27? It was. So also, eight, 18 to 24 was the first. Then, okay. uh, then they expanded it 17 to 25. And then later they even added an older element to it. They had what were called the veteran companies. And those were men who were, were That's a kind great rate. war veterans, World <clears throat> War One. So you had men in their 30s and, and even early 40s under certain circumstances. Kind of makes sense since if everybody's hungry, that might seed the sow the seeds of revolution and who does that? 17 to 27, right? right. <laughs> so let's put them boys to work. You Absolutely. look at like photos of uh, Central Park in New York during the Great Depression and the shanty towns built out there. Hoovervilles. Yeah. Absolutely. We've seen recessions. We've seen economic downturns. But nobody here in this room has been alive for abject poverty nationwide and later worldwide at the scope that this was. And so quickly. So FDR, as I said, was running on this platform of providing this aid. He's elected, not necessarily handily, but a, a pretty good clip. In 1933, he uh, is sworn in. Within days, he gets the Emergency Conservation Work Bill passed. One of the most rapid big scope projects ever passed that quickly. It ends up involving over 3 million young men between 1933 and 1942 in every facet of jobs 
from farming, agriculture, uh, construction, veterinary, you name it, it they did it. So you're, they, getting, you're, I mean, you're getting skilled labor training out of that as well. Totally, yeah. totally. Now, today we know the biggest projects they did were building state and national parks. And we'll definitely talk about that because that is the legacy that's left today are thousands of incredible parks throughout North America. Uh, but what they did is they, with a combination of Army leadership through the War Department and the hiring of specialists, it was twofold in that you hired these young men to give them jobs who were unskilled, often uneducated. You also gave employment to specialized, skilled tradesmen and kept their families fed. You provided education. You provided food and clothing. You provided opportunities. You provided education in finances. A variety of things. But the basic enrollee, as they were called, you didn't enlist in the CCC, you enrolled in it in six-month periods. But the basic enrollee, uh, if 18 or older, could go in on their own. 17 needed a signature from parents. But you had to be pre-approved with an economic need. Uh, if you were middle class, upper class, you had a much harder time getting in there, kind of they didn't do a finance check, but it's pretty readily apparent uh, when going in this enrollment process. But very similar to, en to enlisting in the military, you went to regional areas, uh, offices where they would do uh, paperwork, check uh, background, uh, law record, things like that. So very much like enlisting. But if you pass this process, you then have a physical uh, you are sworn in. You actually raise your right hand and uh, uh, swear an oath. And then, very much like the military, they had regional training centers uh, based on the Army's core system. Uh, so around all around the United States, from East Coast to West Coast, the country was divided into core levels with a post being in charge. For instance, our area, Florida, uh, was in the fourth core region and Fort Screven in South Georgia was the post responsible for the administration. But regionally all around the United States, these men would enroll in their given area. Initially they would try to keep them in the same general area to save on transportation, but eventually it becomes a big selling point for kids to travel. So you get a lot of these Easterners sent out West and you have these wonderful national parks being started. But dollar for dollar initially, this was an absolute monstrosity of a program to institute. And it is amazing when studying it, how well it ran from the beginning to the end. You're involving feeding, clothing, transporting, and training these young men right out of the gate with basically nothing uh, but warehouses full of old, old clothing that we'll, we'll get back into. But an enrollment would involve uh, finding out what, if any, skills or education level these kids had, trying to match them up initially in situations that were close by, uh, where you had several young men of the same kind of age. Uh, by the way, throughout that program, it was uh, uh, 
segregated. There were black companies that we'll talk about. There were Native American companies uh, and Hispanic companies involved, but uh, all were basically by race kept together. They would, uh, like I said earlier, enroll, get a physical, be sent to a training camp, similar to basic training. And it'd be anywhere, again, regionally, everything was different. Some were three days, uh, some were two or three weeks. Uh, then waiting on other enrollees to come in, then they'd be sent to directly to the work site that they were being sent to. An enrollee got $30 a month. Now, today that's not a lot of money, but in the Great Depression, $30 wasn't bad. It's about 700 bucks a month today. But considering they're being fed, it's only housed, 700 clothed, still. Yeah. Not a lot of money. Add to that, they had to send $25 home back home. A month. Yeah, they of the only 30, keep, of not the of 30, 700. <laughs> you got to yeah. keep $5 of that 30. But to put it in perspective, I, you know, I was doing some research and uh, just in my area alone in Brooksville, Florida, uh, a matinee movie was 10 cents. A soda and popcorn was 15 cents. So you could take a date on 50 cents to see a movie and get popcorn and a soda. But uh we, we just went to the movies the other day. We took the kids to the movies uh, at, at a like a matinee showing. What bank did you get a loan from? No kidding, man. Uh, oh, forget about it if you buy popcorn. Oh, no. Oh. All we got, we got popcorn, and we obviously, like smart individuals, snuck in the candy because, good Lord, got popcorn and, like, fountain drinks. 20 bucks. <laughs> Higher. Try $50. Oh, you Jim. got more than one. Yeah, <laughs> two, yeah. Oh, you're just two, talking two slushies. We made one. our kids share. <laughs> two, they did. The kids did share. Oh, me and Amanda didn't share. We sat on opposite ends of the kids, right? So I had like a, a refillable fountain drink, and she got a slushie, and the kids shared one, and she got a big popcorn. It's almost fifty dollars. Yeah. Jeez. God, that hurts. Ridiculous. It does hurt. Yeah. You gotta sneak everything into the movies these days. I'm gonna start ticket. sneaking the kids in. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> sneak myself in. Cargo pants. That's yeah, exactly. where it's at. <laughs> Big to, pockets. To go back to the subject, when you're talking about how many people enrolled in things, you said there's three million men that went through it. Yes. Well, the population, the entire population in the United States back then was only about 125,000. So you figure only about 62 million, I'm sorry, 125 million. million. yeah. So about 62 million were men. But then you got to figure that less than half of that population was in that age range. So if you take 3 million people, or 3 million men into roughly 30 million folks, that's 10%. And that may not sound like a whole lot, but a 10% of the workforce of that age was probably actually higher, was just in the Civilian Conservation Corps not including other programs that were of similar nature or military, et cetera. Absolutely. Like everybody was working on the government dime. So take today where the largest employer in the United States is the government, the federal government. Let's just say that the military has X number of people at any, at the largest point in the late 20th century, 3% of eligible men in that age range served in the military. Over ten percent, as you just said, I think, and I think the actual number is twelve percent that they figure. Oh, really? That's an incredibly high number of eligible people, and there would have been more, but some are out for uh, medical, uh, educational levels, all kinds of different things. So uh, that is a tremendous amount by ratio of the population. 
But these enrollees would be assigned to a given area, as I said. Uh, they would meet their leadership. A typical camp, as they were called, would be on, um, if anybody knows the military, like a company structure. Mm-hmm. And instead of company with two platoons or three platoons, um, they would be broken down uh, into platoon-like elements. But you had generally a uh, captain or O3 level officer, generally the Army, uh, but you read some of Marines and some Naval, Naval Reservists, uh, an executive officer or assistant commander as like a first or second lieutenant. Then you would have an education leader. Now, that could be a commissioned officer or it could be a local teacher that they hire for that. Then you would have um, uh, local experienced men, LEMs, added. These could be civilians in the general area who are specialists in whatever the big thing is there. It can be construction, engineering, electrical. Uh, But the base infrastructure of each of these camps, as they were called, uh, not companies, or they, they eventually call them companies, but the camps would be numbered given for their identification. Uh, but these camps that eventually become companies have a, a military-like structure in that they had, they would be called leaders instead of uh, platoon leaders or squad leaders. You would have assistant leaders who would be like fire team leaders. Um, they each got a little boost in pay uh, with the increased responsibility. But your initial company-like formation would generally be 150 to 200 men with three to five military officers and three to five additional civilian leaders. And this is an average company. They, they would vary as they went along. Uh, you had... Uh, just like the military service support elements to this supply administration medical Uh, that was another thing Uh, each of these companies generally had uh, if not directly attached to their companies uh, they would be in the area each had a doctor some had assistant doctors one or two many of these young men especially the very rural ones uh, received the best medical care of their lives right out of the gate. Some had never seen a dentist. Some had never seen a regular general practitioner. And uh, the service support of these elements was amazing. Then you add education to that. You add learning and trade. But initially, again, as they, uh, to get to these companies, they initially have physicals they're evaluated on what they need when they arrive if you're early on in the program uh, that wasn't all set up some of these guys were sent in the middle of the woods with nothing but dirt roads leading up to it and others were close to cities it again just varied but you could count on the fact if if you are a new enrolled company very early on in the program let's say 33 34 you're sent to the wilderness to create, let's say, a state park. You're basically creating that state park from nothing. So initially, these camps would be set up in a, literally a tent encampment. And for several weeks, they would clear land and they would make a camp, again, very marshally 
set up, being that the Army was running this, very efficiently, uh, very effectively, using the surplus gear from warehouses around the country, had basically 10 to 20-year-old moldy tents. They would create wooden floors, set up uh, sidewalks or walking areas. And when you find photographs of these camps, they are amazing at how incredibly detail-oriented, lined up, and beautified. Everything's painted. Everything's taken care of. Uh, But these initial camps were set up in tents. As the men arrived and they began into the, the, the actual work, eventually every one of these camps would receive actual barracks and buildings. And 99% of them were built by the men themselves. So young men who have never even held a hammer, uh, have no idea, are very quickly, very efficiently trained in all aspects of construction, all aspects of electrical, plumbing, engineering, everything that's involved in this. This is literally from the ground up. A young man within six months to a year will find himself qualified, and that was the goal of the program, to qualify them in a variety of skills that would enable them for employment afterwards. But to take an area where there is nothing and create a living camp, a living place, for months or years, uh, very efficiently, low cost, using nothing but this surplus gear. It is amazing. You, know, you can still see some of the work they did if you go to Mayaka State Park, if you go to Olino State Park. They still have cabins that they built there which, that I think were, weren't necessarily barracks. I think they were more like headquarter type cabins, but Certainly. Um, hewn out of the trees from the area, all put up, all logs. Gorgeous. I was going to bring up a little later, but uh, the legacy of the CCC 90 years later is in hundreds of parks around the country and and a dozen or so that I was going to bring up here in Florida. Uh, But buildings, uh, cabins, you name it. I'm going to talk a little bit later about one that I'm very familiar at at my historical site. We have 18 different buildings that still survive, and I'll explain what a lot of those are. But the legacy that you have today is the United States having some of the best state and national parks in the world, and Florida having four, four times running now the best state parks in the country. It's amazing how long um, wooden structures will last when they, like the type of lumber they use that mature lumber back then how much longer a, a structure built out of mature lumber lasts than um the lumber we use today where we're like quickly growing pine trees over the course of 15 or 20 years to erupt structures they're cutting down pine trees that were 80 90 years old and oak and stuff like that yeah and long that, leaf <coughs> pines versus slash yeah and well bala, yeah but you're you're looking at you're, you're making it built in building it out of pine now that's designed to grow fast to produce lumber they were just cutting down trees that were in the area and milling lumber out of it. The quality of lumber out of a mature tree, like a big old mature tree like that, is significantly better. And the, the structures last forever Absolutely. because of that. It's an excellent point you bring up because today we have to worry about drying times right. and you know stacking and drying. 
these folks are building buildings immediately. They have mills that they set up on site, uh, literally sometimes with pit saws. They dig a hole in the ground and a guy down the base and and using crosscut saws. When you're talking like using mature trees to build things, a lot of like the center of a large mature tree is already dry. It's wood. It's as you, as you see wood, the only part of a tree you're looking at that's alive is the few outer layers, right? The rest of it is, is dead in the center. It can't, a tree can't survive supplying the entire tree with nutrients. Absolutely. As we move through life, it's inevitable that we're going to find ourselves needing trusted advice from legal counsel, from business transactions to real estate, lawsuits to contract matters. We all need advice and assistance from time to time. Attorney Roman Hammis' multi-state law practice focuses on litigation, business law, and real estate. Roman helps individuals and business owners find solutions to their legal problems. If push comes to shove, Roman is an experienced litigator with extensive trial experience and the ability to take it all the way. He's been named Super Lawyer every year from 2016 to present, a distinction given to only 5% of practicing lawyers. Most importantly, Roman is an avid hunter, angler, conservationist, and proud supporter of the UPO Nation. When you need dependable legal counsel, call Roman, 407-680-6050 or... 843-324-1727. Or email roman at romanvhamis.com. That's R-O-M-A-N at R-O-M-A-N-V-H-A-M-M-E-S dot com. Offices Florida and South Carolina. Absolutely. Well, the amazing thing is they come in and set these camps up. They go from tents to full small towns uh, with barracks, schools, uh, a medical dispensary, uh, mess halls. uh, Brothel? Well... A lot of that went on on the weekends, and they eventually got passes. <laughs> you got to figure it. You got two hundred young men. Payday I, comes through. I do have a couple. Always, I do have a couple stories there, but uh, one thing that 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 did happen initially is they very much tried to separate uh, these young men from the young ladies in geographic areas. So a lot of them were way out in the boonies. But another thing later on, though, socially they understood that they needed an outlet and uh, hard hard work deserve time off and things to do so you read of many of these camps having dances and socials uh going into towns if they're local uh so i've got a few stories later on that and then then you go now from that where they try to separate the young men from the ladies and just about every military base you go to now there's a college close by every time (laughs) without fail you got to think these are young men i know what i'm saying is a lot of those are too and they because there's a college right down the road back in the day these are young guys that basically get up and do physical work all day right and i mean so they're young they're fit they're not overfed like when you talk about putting reasonable distance like it'd have to be like 70 miles 
Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> nineteen so, year old man's going to cover that. Like you, know? <laughs> you, you go to you go to Fort Campbell and you've got um, the local like community college right in Clarksville, and then Vanderbilt forty five minutes away in Nashville. So it's really not that far. Oh, absolutely. So the amazing thing here, you've got young men in the prime of their life. They're virile. They're in the best shape of their life. They've been outdoors. Also, bear in mind the times. Majority of locals are unemployed. Their competition are young men that don't have jobs and they're broke. Couple that with with these CCC guys in uniforms who are fit. They probably got game because they've been separated so long from the ladies. You read in many accounts of fights, disagreements in towns, and there's always issues with the non and uh, the, the civilians in the town with these young men and they would bust them in drive them in you read uh, accounts of young men that had five eight mile walks into town with no transportation uh no problem they walked that every day just going from job site to job site but there there were definitely tensions in many of these smaller uh southern towns Man, and if you fought one of them, you were fighting all of them. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, this is a paramilitary organization. And basically, the only thing military about it was the leadership and the equipment equipment and clothing. Uh, Make no bones about it. It was a civilian program. These guys weren't, uh, um, they weren't learning no martial skills, no firearms training, anything like that. But they did have the military discipline that went with camp life. Uh, basically like living on post. They would have reveille wake-up calls. They would have morning colors, salute the flag. They would then be broken down into their teams throughout the day with their leadership in charge. Uh, Then you would have uh, three meals a day. Many of these young men had never seen three meals a day. Many hadn't in years due to the Depression. The crazy thing is, when you look at the enrollment records, the medical records of some of these guys, many, as in the majority, weigh more than when they enlisted, when they get out. <laughs> with with all this hard work, you are adding muscle, you're adding calories that they didn't get every day. I imagine a lot of them came in malnourished, if anything. Many times, and that was a problem. In many cases, they couldn't enroll until they fattened up or until they uh, took care of dental things. I'm interested in, do you by chance know the oath that they took when they when they uh, enlisted into There that? was not a national oath, per se. Each of the geographic core regions had their own version um, it sure. wasn't like swearing an oath to the Constitution. Right. Um, it was it was basically a, a non-deist uh, oath to obey the, the 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 orders of those appointed above you. Um, I was to say, Jordan, see if you can find a, a version of that oath. I want to see what it says. I'm curious because I was he had pictures of the uniforms pulled up earlier, and uh, they're very very military esque. I mean, even the rank. Uh, oh, so absolutely. Even, yeah. These these are army uniforms. Right. Um, they initially are cast off World War One uniforms, and eventually they get the more modern 1930s. And towards the end of the program, starting in 1939, they received their own completely separate uniform um, of forest green. Um, actually quite stylish for the time. 
So let me read this oath real quick. It says, I, insert your name here, do solemnly swear that the information given above as to my status is correct. I agree to remain in the Civilian Conservation Corps for the period terminating at the discretion of the United States between, there's another Blake space, unless soon released by proper authority. And I will obey those in authority and observe all the rules and regulations thereof to the best of my ability and will accept such allowances as may be provided pursuant to law and regulations promulgated pursuant thereto. I understand and agree that <clears throat> any injury received or disease con contracted by me while a member of the Civilian Conservation Corps cannot be made the basis of any claim against the government, except such as I may be entitled to under, under the Act of September, September 7, 1916, and that I shall not be entitled to any allowance upon release from camp, except transportation in kind to the place at which I was accepted for enrollment. I understand further that any articles issued to me by the United States government for use while a member of the Civilian Conservation Corps are and remain property of the United States government, and that willful dest destruction, loss, sale, or disposal of such property renders me financially responsible for the cost thereof and liable to trial in the civil courts. I understand further that any infraction of the rules or regulations of the Civilian Conservation Corps renders me liable to expulsion thereof, so help me God. So they got put to work, and if something happened to them, they were just SOL. Well, they received medical care. Yeah, actually, they received very good medical care. And just like the armies, uh, that that couldn't be taken care of in the camp by the camp doctor, uh, they were authorized local hospitals. Uh, short of that, they would then go to the regional centers, uh, the, the army posts that regionally were in charge. And there they had uh, incredible care as well. By and large, these men are receiving much better medical care than they would have in their, their home lives. The way I'm understanding it, it reads more to the fact that you can't sue them. They're not liable for your injury. I keep going back to brothels with the diseases. <laughs> yeah, that's the first yeah. thing I thought yeah. of, too. Yeah. Yeah. The other part, too, kind of going back to brawling. They probably meant malaria. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> going, going back to brawling. You imagine that you, you think you're going to dust it up with a guy and then you realize that that motherfucker wields an axe eight hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you bring up a great point because many, many of these camps um, all had recreation of some uh, some point sports, but wrestling and boxing were two of the most popular, followed by baseball and disputes were settled in the boxing rings. They would break up fights, say, OK, at. Five o'clock today after chow, we're all going to meet. And it was a camp sport. Everyone showed up mm -hmm. to cheer for their their guy. Somebody in barracks A against barracks B. And that is how you settle disputes. And many, many of these accounts you read of somebody just totally getting their ass kicked. And then shaking hands, getting the blood off the, off the, out of the nose and wiped and shake hands and move on and work together the next day and become lifelong friends. Wow. But uh, disputes, again, like the military, you go through your hierarchy. There was a chain of command. You went through your enrollee leadership first. You didn't just go to the camp commander. You had There was a process to go through all that. But these army commanders were pretty smart. They realized, hey, we can use this to our advantage. Uh, they did not want to get kicked out. You know, these some of these guys are working out of desperation. Right. And they eventually, many of these places, they, they come to love what they're doing. This is great work, great food. And you can take that to your, you know, make that to your advantage by making it athletic, by making it uh, um, team sport type thing. And it's great camaraderie, great,
great esprit de corps. Uh, but athletics is another one of those things added to the to the bill. You, I'll talk about the work that's involved, but the government understood young idle men. You've got to give them something to do. They didn't have a lot of spare time every day. Some of that was allotted for education. Some of that was for uh, self-study, but every one of these camps generally had libraries, some kind of rec hall. Uh, you read many having pool tables, pianos, uh, uh, pretty extensive libraries. You read many of these regional places, small towns would uh, take up collections of books. Uh, most had the latest up-to-date newspapers in the area. And many, many of these camps had their own newspapers because not only were they learning jobs uh, that may be, you know, physical jobs out in the woods, uh, many times they were learning specialized jobs of journalism, medical assisting, transportation, um, administration. They had typing. They had... Uh, uh, certain areas, if they had local civilians that were specialists in giving things, they would volunteer their time or be hired locally to give them extra education. One of the classifications I was looking up on Wikipedia that was listed out was range management. And basically those guys' job was to control predatory animals. Oh. Yeah. See. <laughs> Sign me up. Though I imagine actually a lot of what they were probably doing in probably ways that we wouldn't approve of today. Right, poisoning carcasses and killing everything that came to feed on it. But, you know, I don't know, trapping, hunting, all for 30 bucks a day or a month. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Tough work. The, the joy of this from a standpoint of bang for the buck for the government is you got a absolute tremendous amount of work out of a, a finite number of people. For the enrollee, they got food, they got clothing, they had life experiences and travel to add to this, uh, physical fitness. One thing that we overlook, this program runs from 1933 to 42. What the United States gets is a base cadre of young men that learn military discipline, how to wear a uniform and how to work together in a, in a military environment in the lead up to World War II. And so you look at uh, three million young men go into the program, uh, about a million and a half of them are still of age when World War II breaks out. And we had the advantage of having that many young people already used to the basic military lifestyle. If not the martial training, they understood the discipline and working together. So this was kind of just like a stepping stone for them to proceed into that if they were to go into the military after well they get drafted yeah yeah uh, yeah if they get drafted well a lot of these guys you got to look at the age they're out of draft age by the end but they're still within volunteer age uh, and that's for the base ccc guys i think i alluded earlier they also had uh, they later add what were called veteran companies there were some older men that uh, were just as unemployed as the younger men and so the the government opened up uh, for U.S. veterans, mostly of World War I, the ability to form veteran companies. They did not mix the older with the younger. They were smart enough to realize that that probably wouldn't work out real well. But these veteran companies were men in their 30s, even early 40s, 
that many of them had even even more skills. They're actually coming in with some knowledge and and work experience prior to the depression. So a lot of these veteran companies were highly specialized. They would be used for um, jobs that require a little more thought or engineering, uh, like dam projects and uh, TVA type stuff. Uh, uh, Tennessee Valley Authority, where they would do highly specialized road building and, and engineered construction. Uh, and the TVA still exists today. It does. Yeah, it the, does. I mean, it's a lot of energy-based, energy generation-based stuff now. But but the ECW and CCC were the foundations for all that. This was all part of Roosevelt's New Deal programming. Uh, and they uh, worked hand-in-hand. Hand. In fact, the, the TVA and uh, the NWA, National Works, uh, uh, or not, what was it, uh, WPA, excuse me, Works Progress Administration. They were the umbrella organizations for emergency conservation work and later the CCC. Uh, jobs within these enrollee companies were, were broken down by aptitude. A lot of times they gave written exams. And let's say you've got Joe City Boy, kind of a middle-class guy. He's never lifted a, a hand and held a hatchet, dug a, dug a hole, but he's book smart. Well, he's great for admin. You get another guy who, let's say, he's cooked meals for the family. Well, he's a good base of a cook. And again, all these specialized positions lead to different jobs. They were not all brutal, backbreaking jobs like cutting trees and building roads. The vast majority were. But they were a microcosm of society. And just like military companies needing service support, so did these enrollee companies. So you would have supply specialists, admin people, um, assistants for leadership, for the doctor. And they taught basic first aid for most enrollees, but then some became medical assistants. And, and I've read of several times of enrollees who were medical assistants who went on, went to college, became doctors, surgeons, um, just kind of a taste of what kind of person goes into this program. Uh, there were 13 Congressional Medal of Honor winners from World War II who were in the CCC. Uh, some pretty famous folks. Uh, my favorite out of that bunch is Chuck Yeager, the, the fighter pilot. He was a CCC member. Very nice. And of course, he went on to do some pretty good things. Uh, but the three big things that come out of the CCC is economic survival out of the depression, a generation of young men getting job skills that they would not get anywhere else. And then the United States having even today, 90 years later, incredible parks, state and national roadways, uh, environmental fixes. They did everything from soil erosion mitigation, deforestation to full forestation. There were areas that they would go in and chop down every tree and others where they would go and do nothing but plant hundreds of acres. Uh, but every, almost every Western state uh, national park from Yellowstone to you name it, had the hands of the CCC. Um, but our state here just in Florida 
there are about 13 or so state parks that were either fully created or assisted by the CCC. Um, there's, uh, there's good chances that our listeners have been to many, if not most of these. My favorite of the bunch is Hillsborough River State Park uh, near Tampa. But uh, just a short list, Mayaka River State Park, Highlands Hammock State Park near Sebring, uh, Olino State Park in High Springs, Fort Clinch, which is a great place. The Civil War Fort in Fernandina Beach uh, had a company there that bolstered that up. Uh, Florida Caverns State Park in Mariana. These are just a few. Uh, these all were nothing before the CCC got there. Some were the woods, some were open fields, uh, but basically raw bone places that they came in, set up their infrastructure and their camps, would work their shifts from day in, day out. Uh, some for just a few months or weeks. Others, projects like Hillsborough River State Park was a five-year project with multiple enrollee companies involved. But uh, the bases, they would come in, set up the infrastructure, uh, and all working buildings and things needed. Uh, Hillsborough River State Park, uh, when you go there, they have picnic pavilions, they have cabins, they have uh, wooden footbridges. Um, and initially, uh, the CCC also assisted in what became the State Park Service by being the rangers and interpret interpreters at these parks. Some even uh, would sell tickets in the ticket booth. Uh, many times these newly created parks, there were not enough state park rangers to man them, so the CCC ran them often until the states provided people. You know, along that line, <clears throat> I understand they built back in the day a whole bunch of those fire towers. You know, the big absolutely. Yeah, they built any of those in Florida? Yeah, absolutely. Um, at least twenty that I know of that they built. Uh, there were a little over two hundred national fire towers in Florida. I can only prove about 20 were built by the CCC because there was a big push to build more in the 50s. Okay. So a lot of the ones we know today weren't around until the 50s or 60s. But the, some of the older ones definitely were built by the CCC. Yeah, I know they planted I want to get up in there and just see a view from some of those. They planted a gobstop and amount of trees, too. Like they're, I think like the whole great... As I understand it, like back in that time, they'd already logged out like what we now know as the Great Smoky Mountains. And as I understand that... That was pretty much almost entirely replanted by CCC guys. And Absolutely. now you drive through the just massive trees, right? Because they're all 100 years old. Right. Well, but, you've got the like the Shenandoah Parkway. Uh, the interstate system goes through uh, Appalachians. That was all cleared by the CCC, and then the interstate's built in the 50s. And all this infrastructure work that they were doing was just immense, just absolutely immense. But Florida itself gained not just state parks, they gained a lot of uh, working timber that actually made money for the state uh, and for the federal government. Uh, they provided educational opportunities for these guys. Some of it was just in night courses and classes, but many of these guys who had not completed high school or had dropped out of high school had the incentive afterwards to go back to school afterwards, uh, some going as far as into college I just read the uh, the diary of a guy who was a basically equivalent of a 10th grade dropout 
who eventually became a uh, professor at Florida State University. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they, the opportunities, when you've got a guy who is broke, uneducated, and hungry, you're not going to get a lot of it. But when you provide them a job, money, and incentives, there's, there's no end to what they can do. Uh, now, Florida, as I said earlier, it was as it was nationwide, was segregated. So your enrollee companies were either all white or were all African-American. Uh, but a neat fact that I just recently learned, there were Seminole Native American companies down in Immokalee and the Everglades uh, and throughout the country. I know in Arkansas and Oklahoma, there were several uh, Native American companies. So uh, that's very interesting that the U.S. government recognized minorities in giving these jobs as well and uh kind of separate but equal uh, is, and this is actually the case where it actually was by and large uh, equal uh, but separate still had the same leadership the officers of the army uh, reserve uh, but again the uh, being broke had uh, had no skin color uh, florida itself really was one of the smaller states in the scope of these things. Uh, the Western states had a lot more of the bigger parks and a lot more, of course, public land that was available. Uh, Florida, even in the thirties already was starting to see, uh, had been seeing a boom in people coming down. In fact, one of the largest land booms in Florida history was in the 1920s until the depression kind of slowed that down. Uh, but everywhere from, uh, uh, Ocala National Forest, down all the way into the Everglades, there were CCC projects uh, throughout regionally. I talked about the job skills. I talked a little bit about the social aspects of it. Uh, a lot of these guys had not been around people. You know, some of these rural boys just had families and might, might go to church. Uh, but in this case, exposes a lot of these guys to social situations that they wouldn't have. If you were lucky and had a town that was fairly close by, uh, you had dances, you had movies, you had uh, restaurants. It's understandable that this was not nearly as popular in Florida as it was in other states, considering air conditioning was only invented like 20 years prior to this coming around in 1902. So it definitely wasn't commonplace. Uh, and uh, I know you guys have experienced the heat wave the last couple of weeks we've been having, and even the air conditioning. Uh, I saw, felt my air conditioning shut off yesterday uh, for the first time in a while because I was standing under the vent when it did it, and I was very upset about that, that it turned <laughs> off while I was standing there. But, I mean, God. That is a mental shutdown when it happens. <laughs> yeah. I'll just say historically, um, these are folks that had never experienced climate control like we have today oh, no. they didn't yeah. know the difference from uh, cradle to grave they didn't have any of this so it's very different 90 years ago 100 years ago or, or or past when that's all you've known and when you are raised outside not wearing shoes and you know doing brutal work this was no different than uh, today we're spoiled uh, but even today those of us used to ac and, and climate control you can deacclimate in about 30 days. 
if you stay away from the AC and you're outdoors, you know, an extended camping trip or whatever, uh, it is possible. But we are weak nowadays, really. I can attest to that. Growing up as a kid, my mom, the minivan she drove around all the time, never had AC. (laughs) Ever. Not once did the minivan ever have AC, and I got used to it. You do. many years. And you, you do get used to it. That's why, you know, everyone out there who wonders, how can you guys in Florida, you know, do archery hunting in this heat that we do? You get used to it. You learn to deal with it. Absolutely. I, I don't even know if it takes 30 <laughs> days. We go to the panhandle and I spend all day outside running around. I think it takes like three days. First couple of days are brutal. Listen, but Sydney says you get used to it, but I was out scouting last Friday and uh, we were in like a swamp area and I walked up on a big creek and I debated on laying down in the creek. I was so hot. <laughs> Oh, like we, uh, as I'm standing waist deep in this creek, I'm like, dude, I should just dunk the rest of my body. The, 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 uh, the AC compressor went out in my work truck, uh, about a week and a half ago. And, uh, I told my boss, I said this, either this is getting going in the shop and I'm getting something different or uh, I'm going home and you're paying me to sit at the house. Cause I ain't driving this freaking thing around because you can't even roll the window down and get cool in this dang heat and humidity and everything else. Oh. It just, it's just, you I- get hotter. Having no. a functioning window is a lifesaver. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, talking about, I was looking at the population of Florida in 1935 was 1.6 million. Today it's 21 million. Right. Right. But I think one of, well, we had another history, and it's, you see, we saying that if you if you look at Florida's population, it was the big increases were um, mosquito spray, yeah, air, bug yeah. spray, yeah, AC. <laughs> And mm-hmm. social security. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You have three major land booms or, or, or not land booms, but uh, population booms in Florida. The 1840s with the Armed Occupation Act after the Seminole Wars. You have the 1920s land sales, particularly around Miami. Those are kind of curtailed by the Depression. Uh, but then the 50s, post-World War II, with the big economic boom. And again, some of that was driven by um, AC. Some of that's driven by superior automobiles coming out of Detroit uh, with motels. And then you start seeing the rise in tourism in Florida. So it, but it, it wasn't until, according to Google, until the 1960s that most new construction, the majority of new construction homes had central air. Window rattlers, man. Yeah. Absolutely. I actually, I was going to say, I did not have central heater air in a house until eighty-one. I mean, you're feeling you're feeling houses. what it's like in here right now to not have. We yeah. had the AC. I've had the AC on for over twenty-four hours, and it's already <laughs> heated up in here like it has. We shut it off for a little bit. So, so you spoke some about, and I, I didn't realize that it was a uh, civilian conservation corps cabin, but the Sweetwater Springs cabin, which is actually off of Juniper Run, yeah. Is a really cool cabin that you can, from what I understand, it's like a lottery that you can put into and be able to go stay at it. And it's supposedly it's a really, really cool. I mean, you get your own like personal little spring with it and everything if you win the lottery to go stay really? at it. Yep. Yeah. There's a, I was looking at the same time you were looking at yeah. it. There's a few things out near Ocala that you can look at. They've got the, uh, the Doe Lake Dining Hall, the uh, Juniper Springs Campground in the Mill, the Sweetwater Cabin, like you were talking about, and then there's the uh, the State Road 40 roadside monuments that was all yeah. taken care of by the CCC. Yeah. If you want to get a feel for the a basic CCC setup or camp, 
Highlands Hammock State Park in Mayaka has the state's CCC Museum. Uh, they utilize uh, buildings that were built by them, the dining facility, uh, barracks, and some other buildings still exist and still are in use. It's a wonderful little museum. Uh, check ahead because they they're, they're run by volunteers, so their hours are a little spotty. Um, how, but, uh, how long ago did they, uh, did they start that up? That museum has been around about 20 years that I okay. know of, but uh, they have a volunteer curator. For years and years, actually, their uh, guides were CCC enrollees from there, uh, veterans. But, of course, now they, they are – I don't even know if there's any left in Florida alive that were around there. They would be over 100. Uh, the last volunteer at that park died about four or five years ago, I understand. Uh, but there's – there was an alumni association for CCC members um, that they would have annual reunions and events geographically around the United States. Uh, about 10 years ago, they turned that into a legacy group. So basically the sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters of CCC veterans are eligible for membership. There's a wonderful organization called the CCC Legacy Society. Uh, which is not based on anybody in your family being in, just anybody with a general interest in the CCC. They do an incredible job in um, creating uh, remembrance of the CCC. They have educational programs. They have uh, uh, they sponsor living history events at different sites that were CCC camps. Uh, but they are really great on spotlighting the work that occurred back then. Uh, within historical circles, military history uh, gets a lot of popularity from reenactments and living history events. Civil War, of course, is a big thing down here, Seminole War. Uh, but from a standpoint of modern living history programs, you wouldn't think of the CCC being recreated like that. However, there are guys that are doing CCC Living History. My my place is one of them. Um, Chinsegan Hill Historic Site, we have an annual event where we have reenactors that, uh, uh, using hand tools, do demonstrations. There's reproduction equipment and clothing. And this is actually one of the larger growing segments of historical reenacting in the United States. Um, I did not realize that until recently. Uh, about 10 years ago, there might have been 20 people around the country that did living history programs and that. Uh, one of the groups that I'm a member of uh, on social media has over 500 members around the country that do programs at their various historic sites. The Under Pressure Outdoors podcast is brought to you in part by Hang Free. With a mission to provide top quality products for the best possible price, Hang Free believes that the saddle hunting experience is worth more than money. They create both tried and true products as well as debut new items to the saddle hunting community, creating a community of saddle hunters that don't have to break the bank to participate in the hobby that they love. Do yourself a favor and join the Hang Free family this hunting season. They truly have everything you need. Don't forget to use offer code UPO10 at checkout for 10% off your order at hangfree.co. So I got, I got a question about <clears throat> you talk about the living history. When these guys showed up and they they've got to basically build their camp from whatever's out there. 
there's no mill. So I'm assuming that in their first run, even if they have the water or whatever to build a mill, they were they were splitting all those logs with they're ripping those logs with handsaws. Absolutely. So at at best they oh. would have pit saws where they dig a hole in the ground and use crosscut saws from the from from low. But by and large, these when you go and look at these buildings that exist today, the cabins, the mess halls that are still around, you will very much note the hand hewing in all of the big timbers. And these were all hand cut. I got a big five foot crosscut saw. So have you ever seen that thing? Uh, not your particular. It, it's on the other side of the wall. I wanted to hang it in here, but I never got around <laughs> to it. Yeah, I have to make that happen one day. Yeah, I've used them once. I don't know that Brutal. I would want. I mean, I'm not sure where the heck my grandfather got that thing from, but he was like, "Do you want this?" I said, "Absolutely." Well, you know, the one I used was maintained in tech because yeah. that kids, one needs they new kept handles. The, yeah, they kept the blades wicked sharp. You'd be mm-hmm. surprised because you're talking about teeth that are. Oh yeah, no, know, I, yeah. When you take when two guys get on there and start ripping back and forth and that, like each stroke, you're cutting like three inches of wood. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, but it's still brutal work. I'd imagine wanting to keep them maintained because last thing you want to yeah. do is have to do all that with a dull saw. Oh, absolutely! Oh. That was a big or part of what they did. <laughs> is these uh, civilian leaders were absolutely on top of them. Uh, you had daily maintenance. You had classes on that maintenance. Uh, they were uh, backcharged if they broke stuff maliciously. You know, day to day, if something broke, no problem. You you turn it in, but. Uh, if somebody by misuse or or poor maintenance did something, you were charged for that. Maintenance was a very big part of what they did. Preventing maintenance and and after afterwards. You say, but the same thing still happens in the military today. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. You lose a piece of something, they're gonna charge you for it. Oh yeah. I've never paid so much for something I never or your used in my steals life. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a different whole different story. But I've never paid so much for something in my life that I never used and lost. <laughs> but no you've never paid so much for something that was made by the lowest bidder exactly (laughs) i've looked at what i've been charged for things and i'm like man there they paid how much for this and this (laughs) yeah that's why when you ets surplus stores were always the place to beeline to replace all that stuff you lost oh i packed all that crap i i I begged bar i had extra stuff that i was trading for stuff that people had extra stuff for yeah yeah, the PCS hit me harder than the ETS did, though. Uh, but oh yeah, trying to clear CIF. Yeah, it's always fun. <laughs> oh, but I want to talk about their uniforms for a little bit. I like yeah. the. I, I was looking at the the logo, man, and and I'm thinking like I'd love to. Do, I see your uh, civilian conservation corps T shirt. Yeah. Like I'd love to do something like that, and then donate a portion of the proceeds back to. Uh, uh, the, there was. A, Sound like an organization you just yeah like a legacy with. society yeah yeah donate that back to legacy society, um you know because that's a great so thing. they had they had several different uniforms the most common uh, was I guess what you would call a class B uniform today so it'd be a woolen shirt and trousers uh, uh, with or without a tie and a uh, garrison cap uh, they did have very early on a a nice logo in green and yellow for the CCC uh, that they made patches and they had a wide variety of insignias uh, that went on the uniforms and they had a lot more leeway than the army and the army you're governed by AR 670-1 but they let a a lot of individuality go with these guys Uh, it was kind of a matter of pride too Uh, 
the whole reason we award decorations today is you, know, you feel good. You got something to wear on your uniform. And they did the same thing. They had qualification badges. They had different patches. Sometimes their own individual companies would have a unit patch. Uh, all kinds of different insignias. And uh, as a collector today, I can attest to the fact that there are hundreds of different various insignias and patches and um, things. They also, just like today, you got the PX and you got those folks setting up tables selling you t-shirts and rings and jackets and embroidery and basically trying to separate a private from his money. Mm -hmm. They did the same thing in the 30s with the CCC. There were mail order catalogs and even their own little post exchanges. You could buy souvenirs. There were silk pillows to send home to your mom, your girlfriend. They had rings, belt buckles, special insignias. Essentially the company store. Absolutely. Yeah. And and for a guy that's only, you know, taking home five dollars of that thirty, they had a quick way to separate him from that five bucks. But there are hundreds of items today that are that are collected. Uh, from rings to tie bars to uh, specialized insignia but to, to go back to the uniforms this uh, initial class b type uniform was a surplus world war one uh, woolen shirt and trousers uh, leather shoes uh, garrison cap and tie and then by each camp commander would authorize different insignia nationally uh, you had one one way, the patch and, and others insignias, but a lot of times the localized camps authorized more. Uh, then in um, the mid-30s, by 36, 37, they've exhausted the World War One stocks, and they're wearing the same thing that the current army in the 30s was wearing, which is very similar, a brown woolen uniform of some type. They also used the fatigue uniform of the day. And unlike today, there was camouflage or, or green. The fatigue uniform then was blue denim, uh, kind of like prison labor. But uh, <laughs> you see thousands of photos of the CCC guys in denim uh, trousers, uh, shirts, and um, floppy hats. In fact, I am wearing... Kind of uh, looking like Jeff. I am wearing the copy of those jeans that they wore. This is the U.S. Uh, 1919 fatigue pants for the day, and what? they're just like modern jeans. Now, now where do you get where do you get those at? There are specialized companies online that uh, produce I noticed your stuff. your front pockets look significantly Very larger. Big. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there there believe it or not are several companies around the world that make reproduction military gear, uh, but because this was all surplus army stuff, it's available. Looking at the pictures on those guys, you could get that uniform in small or medium. Yeah. There wasn't a whole lot of need for double XL back then. Not at all. <laughs> Jordan Not brought that all. crosscut saw back over here. There we go. Uh, but then uh, the late 30s, 1939, in fact, um, there was a movement to give even more pride to these enrollees, plus a kind of a recruiting thing. That <clears throat> the recruitment had slowed down. Part of that was a testimony to how successful the program was. Uh, people had money and jobs, and they're recovering from the uh, uh, the depression pretty well. 
So by the late 30s, they're having a little tougher time in recruiting for some of these projects. So they created their own new uniform, which was spruce green. Um, those are highly prized by collectors as well. Uh, but they had, for the first time, truly a different uniform than what the Army had. Uh, and basically, uh, this ends in 1942, and for the biggest reason, the start of World War II. Right. And they wanted as many people to join the military as possible. And then, you you know, I, I spent some time at West Point. You talk about the start of World War II. And um, you, just as any other football stadium, you drive around, you, you go to their football stadium. And at the top, they've got, you know, what championships they won. They're like... 42, 43, 44. I'm like, yeah, well, no shit. Yeah, every <laughs> male in the United yeah. States. <laughs> yeah, they had Heisman winners in 45 and 46. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Army, Navy. Yeah, right. <laughs> but that's the only thing they've got, Army, right there. It's during World War II, the only time they won. I was like, well, yeah, well, you pretty much had everybody at that point. Oh, yeah. So I'd hope you did pretty good. <laughs> Check out their little winter cap that kind of like buttons down around their neck and I feel like I could just about hunt with one of those these days. So the crazy thing is, is uh, LL Bean still makes an exact copy of that, that really? same hat. Really? And it is really functional. What it does is it rolls up on the side and buckles in the back. So it creates like a baseball cap. Oh, it's the Raider O'Reilly and it, hat. And, yeah. Well, he has a Jeep cap. It's oh, okay. wool. Uh, this is a little different. But they, uh, they had a hat from 1910 to the 50s that was similar. But yeah, it would roll up along the sides and then could come down and it wrapped around your chin. Uh, from experience, it is a very functional and effective hat. It works really well. These are, you know, by and large, they were pretty smart in this era from a functionality standpoint of clothing. It had to be durable and, and fairly tough. So you do have a lot more woolens and heavier denims. So maybe not necessarily, you know, the greatest wear in the summer, um, but they had years and years of experience in the Army knowing what lasted, what worked. And uh, so it worked very well for the CCC as well. Yeah, you once, you get, once you get calloused from your groin to your kneecaps, it you know, <laughs> doesn't matter what you wear. That's a great point. You can tell in these pictures when they were working in the heat because half, the, oh, half shirtless. of those little jackets are yep. missing. Yeah, I was just about to say, all they're wearing in some of those pictures is, might pants. as well just be a pair of shorts or pants or whatever. Well, it was, it was so common to be shirtless on these sites that there is a, um, a statue that has been copied um, around the country. They uh, Actually, it's a... Um, they commissioned this uh, statue, and it's in probably 50 different parks right now and growing. And it's basically a shirtless CCC guy. He's got the floppy denim cap and his denim trousers. And he's either got an axe or a hammer in his hand. I'm not real sure. But uh, there's hundreds of shirtless guys in these pictures. And, and also, you don't see them in the same clothing necessarily in groups. They, they did have leeway. So these guys uh, could wear civilian clothing, bring their own. They could use the issue clothing. A lot of the guys realized, well, this issue clothing isn't the greatest, so they would have uh, their family send them clothes from home, flannel shirts and, and things like that. But, yeah, there's that statue there uh, Man, that you I, got pulled up. If I could get away with some of that on the job sites I work, that'd be awesome. Well, and here's the, <laughs> here's the propaganda. This, this, this comes from a poster that was designed by the government 
for recruiting purposes in the 30s. And I mean, that dude is jacked. Yeah, he is. That is not a one of those people. Yeah. Well, yeah, but not a one of those guys. That he no, did those photos no. were that. <laughs> yeah. the other guys one of the guys had like, love handles. He must have just got there. Looked like Jordan and Sid. Hey, come on now. Hey, now. I mean, I know you put us in a group, you know, scrawny little white boys over here, but I mean. No, I laugh every time I see it because it's it's an accurate assessment, you know, the clothing and equipment he's got and everything, but that dude is ripped. That is not your average enrollee. No. <laughs> they didn't have no. the pec deck back, didn't they? You know, I mean? I, they were, you know, maybe they were just trying to boost morale at that point, you know? <laughs> well, it, it truly, it's like, hey, man, you keep going. You're going to look just like this guy. It does look like a bunch of SIDS in that picture right there. Easy. Easy. Pot and calls the kettle black. Hey, don't, <laughs> don't pick yourself out there, Jordan. Come on now. But honestly, they were no different than today. They used propaganda. They used marketing. And that's all that was. It wasn't necessarily horribly inaccurate. In fact, you know, these guys were in the best shape of their lives when they're in this program. There's no doubt about it. That guy's pretty jacked. Yeah, look at this. Yeah, look, yeah. Yeah, look, at the, look at the veins on his forearms there. Yeah, yeah. I was hitting for the other team, I guess. I'd... Yeah, those guys uh, Those guys have been in the Conservation Corps a little while, I imagine. So, <laughs> was, no there, love handles. was their primary job building state parks or were they responsible for other things? There was no real primary job. It was all regional, what was needed at the time. And every camp might be different. Some were used to create camps. Some were to build roadways in mountainous regions. Some were forestation. Some were deforestation. They fought a lot of fires, too. Big time. And that's what I was going to bring up. In most places in the country, their number one responsibility was fire control, wildfires. Uh, building the observation towers and manning them as well. Uh, if you had to say what was the the number one role of the CCC outside of camp production, or uh, I'm sorry, um, park production, it's forest fires, without a doubt. These guys are out there fighting forest fires with rakes. With rakes. rakes. Well, yeah, and, I mean, they still do. And I'll say, but you act like that's not what we don't do, still do today. Yeah. For the most Honestly, part. Yeah. And, I, and I've talked to a lot of specialists that, that do it now for the national uh, national organizations. There is very little difference other than aviation and pumper trucks and things. But uh, they used rakes and, and pump sprayers, by and large, and were very effective. Now, you also realize their strength in numbers. When you have 150 to 200 men with those rakes, they can create those uh, uh, fire lanes really, really quickly. I remember when I was in the Army, you'd get a, a fire on a range. They would give you like a rake handle with a mud flap on the end. Right. Yeah. There just flap it out. It's not much different from an actual fire rake. Yeah. Yeah, it's similar. No, this is literally yeah. just a like a hand like a wooden handle with a mud flap on the end, and they would yep. send us send a you know Humvee <laughs> downrange with eight or nine guys, you know six or seven guys, and then now they're flapping a fire out. Tracer yeah. catches you know dry grass on fire. Right. Yeah. Not to get off topic, but along the same topics here, um, you know, talking about forest fires and stuff. Um, were railways any part of what uh, what they had it to construe with going through parks? Because I know there are a few parks that have railways going through them. Absolutely. Good question. Um, by and large, there was a union labor problem uh, with them. The railroads were vastly union labor, and so they did not have a lot of hands-on work with the railroads. Now, there were times that they created rail beds in areas that there weren't, and later those areas were 
acquired or sold to the railroads, but by and large, they were not working the trains or laying track because of that. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause yeah, I heard you mention they were laying roads or roadways yep. and fire. So I figured that might've been oh, a great all, question. Along the same lines. Great okay. question. Yeah. He's got that big old cross cut saw. I yeah. Know. What I hate to it's, begin it's, the guy carrying that that's backpack. A beast. I mean, yeah. Is that what that is? A backpack sprayer? That's exactly what oh, that yeah. is. Yeah. That is a pump sprayer. An old galvanized steel. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say. I would hate weighs to be the 50 guy pounds carrying. empty. Oh, man. <laughs> look, look, look at where it's riding on him, too. Way, so we're, oh, we're looking back. at... Oh, oh. No arch support. To, get, to give a little context, we're looking at some Google images under Civilian Conservation Corps Firefighting. He's got a pony keg on his back, essentially. <laughs> essentially, yeah. And you're right. There is no back support. It's just shoulder straps. Yep. Straight to the shoulders. Hey, you know what? Let's, yep. let's put it this way. It might not even be straps. It might just be a piece of rope. But looking yeah. at that, it well, looks like it may bands. only be gravity fed. I don't even know that it's pressurized. Hard to say. Uh, they they had some that were state of the art right. uh, that the government acquired, and others uh, were not much better than a bucket. <laughs> 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 but I I, I can imagine. But I've handled a couple of the the sprayers from the 30s and 40s, and some of them were were hand pumped, uh, pressurized. Others weren't. Mostly they're leather straps. Like a backpack. Yeah. But that's only, yeah. dude's only got like five or six gallons on his back, right? Yeah. The, the biggest units were, were 10 gallons, and they, they were found to be too heavy. Yeah. So they're basically um, uh, two and a half to five gallons. I said five gallons. You're still talking, that's what, 35 pounds of water? ton of weight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, you imagine that that guy did an awful lot of walking back and forth between say, 30, 30, 30, 35 and pounds. back out there again. 35 pounds doesn't seem like a lot, but strap 35 pounds on your back, even with a with a backpack without that supports added adjustable straps. Well, yeah, not, I mean even yeah. even a backpack that supports it like with a with a hip belt and stuff like yeah. that. Thirty five pounds will wear on you after it a adds couple up. miles. Yeah. yeah, it sure does. I, I tell you what, I would have loved to grab a hold of one of these guys when it comes time to drag a deer out of the woods. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> like, hey, can you guys come on, give me a hand here? No, you know, I tried to... that. I tried that lodgepole method one time. You know, where you tie the deer. You see the oh, like yeah. the old Native American. No, oh. never again. No. No, my shoulders were so that like my both my shoulders were black and blue. We went a hundred yards. My shoulders were destroyed after trying to do that. It's not as easy as the photos make it look. I was like, no, nah, we're just gonna drag it. I mean, we had like a that was a two and a half mile drag, but I ain't no way we were carrying it out that way either. We got it out of the bottom that way and then got to the flatland and said, nah. <laughs> drag that sucker. I bet there's some technique to that so that you're not Otherwise, you get to start bouncing on your shoulders. Yeah, the lodge pole. There has it to was. Be. It was maybe I don't know. It wasn't but the the deer weighed? I'm not sure what he weighed lightweight. He was 246 pounds dressed, so he was extremely heavy. Whoa, uh, that's a beast. And then we drug him out, and that we were carrying him live weight. And I didn't feel dressed that deer until we got all the way back to the truck. Wow. Well, it looks good in Hollywood when all you have to do is walk in from off stage. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but I I do think that uh, doing the lodgepole method to carry it up out of the bottom was probably the best thing to do because it would have been a really, because it was pretty steep. I mean, you saw the hills in Tennessee when we were there. We drug that deer up out of a bottom like that, got it up to the top, the ridge, and I said, nah, <laughs> we're done, bud. I mean, it took three of us three and a half hours to get that deer mile or something, more than a mile back to the truck. That's a good point. If we hunt up there again, I think I'm going to bring a very large section of rope. So if the a deer, die, a deer yeah. dies at the bottom, we're going to run it up over a tree and we're going to walk down. Pull a, it up. 
a block and tackle system. Yeah. yeah. Smart. But, oh, man. No, some of that, just the, oh, here they are. Got a guitar. And oh, there we go, yeah. Playing a good old time. I assume with the boys. So you got to realize, they got a dog in there. They were a microcosm of society. They're yeah. coming from all aspects. And so you're going to have country boys. You're going to have city boys. You're going to have musicians. You're going to have actors. You name it. You know, it's a microcosm. One of the biggest impacts from this, and you talk to these men years later, whether, uh, you know, I've talked to some live uh, veterans from them. I've read a lot of accounts, and I've also uh, listened to some of the recorded interviews. The two biggest things that came out of it from their mind was uh, having a good life during the Depression when many of them did not, whether that was three squares a day or a roof over their head uh, and learning skills. Uh, The biggest thing, though, that they all say without a doubt was the brotherhood, the camaraderie that they got lifelong friends. They got to learn how to work with people, work as a team. And that's why so many of them went on to become military veterans in World War II. But yeah, by and large, the big impact on them was social and not necessarily the job skill part of it. But that was essential to making that all work. And kind of to conclude, it is downright amazing to see a program that was created from the ground up um, within three months of this being signed into a bill they were manning the first camps three months and that continued for another nine years to 1942 so what was the downfall the downfall was literally just world war ii uh, and then need for increased soldiers and not uh, uh, work. So they suspended that work. And the intention was at the end of the war to recreate it. Uh, and the reason why it didn't is the prosperity after World War II, the economic upturn uh, from factories and, and everything, that there was plenty of jobs. Yeah, nobody wanted was. to go. <laughs> yeah, and after fighting war for three or four years, the last thing they want to do is go back to digging ditches and chopping trees. I don't blame them. That we got to export to Europe and Asia on our terms as the last man standing. Yeah, um, it's kind of cool how you can take, you know, and the 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 CCC is a sex story of it, a success story of it, but how you can take a group of men and force them to embrace that much literally just embrace the suck together and it just brings them closer there's no bond like the bond built over mutual suffering absolutely yeah i agree you know as a staunch capitalist i i I do have an issue sometimes with the idea of government competing in the labor market but there was a lot of trouble back then but what i don't understand is like today there's a lot of work still needs to be done and there's an awful lot of able-bodied men that, I mean. So they're, they're currently. You no, know, they're just not working, but well, they're the, still getting paid. There are currently some states, California, Texas, and a couple others that have their own version of the CCC. Um, but there is a growing trend in people wanting to mandate some kind of public service. Not necessarily institute a draft uh, for those that just shouldn't be soldiers. But some kind of compulsory service, be that AmeriCorps, Job Corps, 
conservation work of some kind. And I'm not totally adverse to that. I, that's what I was about to bring up because I've heard that before too. You, you know, mandatory service, like that's great, but there's a lot of people who really shouldn't nah, be in the military. Absolutely and not. And there needs to be another option out there, yeah. whether even if you join the Peace Corps for right. two or three years yep. to to a, like a broadening experience in your life. So we have that already. AmeriCorps is the Peace Corps for the United States. You're not going around the world. And like I said, this growing trend is to bring service back that's going to help the United States or right. their individual areas. They're established. Uh, they're they're there, ready to join, and I I think there is value in a, a young man or woman right out of high school looking at options. You know, they may not be college material. They may want to learn skills. Uh, may want to travel. These are great options. Oh, you meet really so are. many. You meet so many different people. Never in my life had I met someone who could not swim until I joined the army. Growing up in Florida, right. everybody swims, oh, yeah. right? I you mean, take there's it for water granted. everywhere. Yeah. So I meet some meet a guy, and he, man, the dude loved to fish out in his kayak, fishing all the time. And I'm like, did you know you can take your life jacket off, right? When you're doing things like, I can't swim. Yep. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, you literally can't. Like, you don't know how to swim. I was like, every. If it's I'm, the guy I'm thinking of. He still can't. It's swim. not. It it's is. not Tristan. No. Oh, no. <laughs> um, oh man, I thought it was. But uh, the, the thing is, I'm like, dude, I refuse to believe now as an adult that you don't know how to swim. Like you, you've seen enough videos of people swimming. You know how to swim. You may be a very weak swimmer and you may be afraid to try and swim, but you know how to swim. You're just not good at it. I'll, I'll attest to that. I know for a fact that I'm a weak swimmer, but raise hell or high water. I will. Some of the dumb shit sure. I've seen you do off a rope swing. You I, wouldn't think you were your weak I, swimmer. I'm a weak swimmer. I'll, I'll admit to it. I know I'm a weak swimmer. When the current's against me, I, I well, will that's, fight. That's different. Like, but you gotta. Have, it, I think it's all. It's all in the mind. I think yeah. every bit of it. You have to have that willpower. You want to drive and drive to continue pushing better. Yeah. It also helps if you get like Will and I. It's pretty much impossible for us to drown. I think. The hell I try. Yeah, I'm like a stick, man. I, I, I can just float down the river. <laughs> I mean, you've seen how skinny I am, how skinny George I was going to say, you guys here. probably can't float. Will yeah. and I, you know. <laughs> I have my own personal flotation device right exactly. around the middle yeah. here. I was yeah. about to say, I'm, I'm working on well, mine. It's getting there. but Floating chest deep, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, indeed. Let me take a break for a minute. I got to pee. Sounds Let's good. Take a break Sounds good to me. So what's the legacy of the... Civilian Conservation Corps. So you have two legacies. The physical, what is still there, what's what's around, and the spiritual. The spiritual is a whole generation of men that passed through what could have been a trauma, both financially, spiritually. You give jobs... And with jobs, you give esteem. And that leads into being a better man as a whole. And you leads into families and education. And so take the benefits of hard physical labor coupled with learning valuable skills and add to that working as a team, learning some self-discipline, all those are positive attributes. And 
then they raise their children and those children have children and, and you know we have grandparents and great grandparents who were part of this program the the physical legacy is the surviving parks uh the ones we listed earlier, Hillsborough River, Mayaka, Florida Caverns. You have great conserved places where families can go and, and be one with nature that might not have happened without having a, a big fixed program in place or would have happened much later. And when you go to several of these sites, some of these are time capsules. You go and the buildings that they use look like they were just built yesterday there's dining halls left. There's these cabins. Some even have a couple of barracks that they're built. Um, one thing that I learned that was very interesting in this, because of the need for very quick production of these camps, the government started using modular construction that we use every day in building trailers and campers and RVs. They made prefab homes. You know, um, Jim Walter... <laughs> earned a really good living making these, but uh, that goes back to the 20s and 30s. Many, many of these buildings were, were prefabs that they just slapped together, saving time and money. But others were site-built and are still there today as a testimony to their work. You know, to take unskilled labor that are cutting their own lumber and they're still here in use 90 years later is amazing to me. My own historic site, Chinsegut Hill, is uh, even though we're an antebellum plantation home, there was a company in 1936 that was sent there to do work. The last owner of the house, Raymond Robbins, was um, an economic advisor to FDR and four other previous presidents, so he was highly placed with the government. And not to say that he got uh, a sweet deal, but uh, his... Uh, his working relationship with FDR got a company sent to his property that he had just a couple of years before donated to the federal government. Uh, and they created a U.S. Department of Agricultural Agriculture Research Station. So the USDA uh, was there already in place. And so the, the stated purpose to send this unit down was to build the infrastructure, barns, stables, roads, and bridges. Well, those are still left today, 90 years later, when you visit our historic site and then walk around on the grounds and uh, the surrounding areas that now don't belong to us, but that are state or federal run. You can hike on the trails that were roads created by the CCC between their work sites. You can look at an archaeological dig where they have dug up the pump house and mess hall areas. There is a field kitchen chimney and fireplace still set up there are offices and barns and stables still on site there is a beautiful stone lodge at the end of one of the hikes right on lake lindsay to our north that was their rec hall and that is still there today so you can go physically see and get a feel for the land that they were on what they did to make this happen and again, as a testimony to their work, 90 years later, this stuff still exists. And not only exists, but is being used. And some of the most popular state and national parks 
today were the ones created by them and and you have a two-year waiting list on a lot of those cabins to rent when you go to those two uh, but spiritually and physically it is a vast legacy that this group did and i don't think that you could come even remotely close to replicating that today with modern politics and uh, um, people's psychological makeup this was a different time a very special time and uh, very very impactful on just about every area of the united states they they are they are the greatest generation absolutely time. yeah without a doubt i, I mean that that's what they're referred to as the great the greatest generation the generation that that made up the large uh majority of the makeup of the, the soldiers that fought in world war ii <clears throat> in that time frame oh, they're the last generation that had to figure it out or basically it died right i mean i mean you look at it they came out of the great depression and and more or less what better people to come out of that than the people of you know, we're able to deal with such great tribulation that they went through. Mm-hmm. I think it made people, them stronger. People in our generation would probably rather die than do that. I don't think so. I think that's the problem, though, is we have, we've gotten to the point where there's such a safety net. Yeah. Like that, <clears throat> let's face it, if you just simply say, I refuse to work, you'll still get plenty to eat, you still have some place to live, you still get a cell phone, and you still get some form of transportation. And... I don't know. You know, it's like if that wasn't there and that just wasn't an option, then people would have to figure out another way. And people say, oh, they turned to crime. Well, of course, they also used to electrocute you for a lot less back then, too. Well, I, I, yeah. you know, it, it's, it gives you a sense of purpose and belonging and, and a, a lot of that. Yep. A, a sense of belonging, mainly belonging to a group or belonging, you know, having uh, – something to wake up for that's why you have people who think the earth is flat (laughs) because they have something to belong to and people they can agree with and all get along because they can all say the earth is flat you know uh, agreeing with you on on those matters i think i think if times were much simpler (laughs) as they were back then we would have a lot more strong able by able-bodied minded people to be able to go out there and face the challenges that those people back then faced didn't I mean, Joe Rogan say that? Go back to flat earthers like vegans, like vegans are the people that the flat or the flat earthers right. didn't get to first. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I saw something the other day. What was she? <laughs> a vegan something drinking uh, or, organic milk, organic cow's milk. milk. Because it was it, because it was organic, there was she justified it somehow, and somebody was like, "I have to find the video." But man, I was like, "That's definitely not vegan. You're just an idiot." Yeah. One of the biggest takeaways that I got in researching and and listening to some of the interviews and and the few living ones that I had met was how few desertions. And how few quitters they were there were in this. A very low number. Like um, like out of 150, 160 men, there might be four in a one-year period that just took off saying, I'm done. Part of that was because there was no real punishment. They, they, they were allowed to voluntarily leave. Uh, they would just not leave on good terms. 
but it's a testimony to what they were getting out of this. Right. That they stayed. And, you know, some of this was brutal labor. <laughs> and, and not to say that they've got uh, um, the whole, uh, they're not the only ones that have had to labor through history by any means. And, and you know, we will all agree that they were probably a little hardier than our stock today. But that said, they worked because they had to in some cases. But by and large, they stayed because they wanted to. And, and that speaks volumes about the quality of the person, uh, the quality of the program. And, and that was one of the greatest successes as well. They stuck to it and completed their enrollments. And you think about it too, as far as being hardier, when you go back to the 1930s, there weren't any computer programmers. There weren't, weren't a whole lot of office and middle management jobs. So unless you happen to be in one of those, you know, an accountant or whatnot, whatever job you went into is going to be physical work, you know, by and large. Absolutely. Yeah. What would you equate? It seems to me that the majority of the job that they fill, the roles that they fill is very akin to today's forest service and forest and, and, um, uh, like uh, state parks departments and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So number one, probably you combine forest service with rangers and that's going to be a lot of it. But also remember the support, the service support and all this. So you have clerks, you have supply specialists, you have truck drivers, you have journalists, you have radio men. Um, right. And so for every guy holding a shovel let's say for every 10 guys with a shovel there might be a guy back in camp running things uh so it wasn't just manual labor that they, they all not all manual labor there, there were some who learned administrative skills and and led to greater education down the road a lot of these guys became businessmen you know by watching how things were run uh, economically the brothel. <laughs> you know, they had to find a way. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, the way I look at it is if you were back, if you were alive back then at that time, you would have been running the brothel. I mean, it seems at that point. Pimping ain't easy. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. But th that, that work still largely exists today, just under a different name. That's right. And yeah. Under... You know, the Forest uh, Service. The Forest Service, state parks, you know, um, like the job you're working. Yeah. It's something that they would have done at that time. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're interested in that type of work, it still does exist. It's just not under the Civilian Conservation Corps anymore. But, gentlemen, you have any closing thoughts? I'm going to say don't be... Uh don't take for granted <laughs> what we have these days. I mean, with our parks and everything we're able to access, it's because of those men and women. Soak in the history, man. Yeah. Soak in the history. Can I, uh, can I piggyback on that? Go ahead. Well, piggyback on that. Not taking for granted, but uh, also at the same time, don't be, uh, don't be afraid to add to what those in our past years have built up and increase more of, of what we have in the future to look forward to. You know, what those people back then started, 
it's only going to be able to continue and keep going on as long as we keep that legacy alive and we add to it. So use more, it as a building block. It, yep, yep. Use it as a building block. Absolutely. The science is different from what they did at forestry management Absolutely. and stuff, but the uh, the volunteerism in the work is still very much largely the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could still volunteer to go take care of. Well, I'll tell you firsthand, I am a volunteer at Dade Battlefield Historic State Park. Every one of these parks has citizen support organizations, and you don't have to go do brutal backbreaking work. You can help in a variety of ways. If you're the giving kind, uh, you can give financially, but more importantly, you can give of your time. If you've got a favorite state park in your area, by all means, jump in. Every one of these places has an organization and can use the help. And there's not a one that's not short-staffed. That is for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is, I'll agree with that. You know, uh, there, I was working, uh, my teenage years, I was working out of Lake Louisa State Park over in Claremont. Mm-hmm. And uh, one gentleman there made the comment. It was the first time I had ever heard the comment before, but he made the comment that said, you know, financially, we're not all the same. But in the way of time, we all have the exact same amount. And so if you can give a little bit of that time to put forward and to uh, contribute your time, you're better off than those who don't. There is no greater donation than that of your own time. Much more important than even the money. What you can't pay for monetarily, you can always pay for in sweat. Mm-hmm. Agreed. But, well... I appreciate you joining us again this week, Ross. Absolutely. Uh, My pleasure. Wonderful, very informative uh, thing. And I definitely want to look into trying to create some sort of T-shirt and give some money back. And I think we can make a pretty badass T-shirt out of that. That'd be very cool. And uh, Don't forget more hen seasons probably next week. We need to this create a... Right around the corner. A couple weeks. Yeah, we were yeah. just talking about that. We yeah. need to create a, a history segment with Ross. I think we could. I'm your Huckleberry. Yeah. I can bring you up periodically. <laughs> we got a we got a history guy now. I am yeah. a font of useless knowledge. <laughs> it's not Our useless. Favorite. It's, it's not useless. It's great. Yeah. Those I, that don't learn their history are doomed to repeat it. Just yeah. like the rest of us here, I enjoy <laughs> listening to that history. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny because we do the the history podcast, and largely the room is silent. We all listen. Yeah. Oh which, yeah. Which tells you that. If if we're silent and listening, the listeners are silent, and but well, they're you know some of them might talk to you. I mean, I'm not calling you weird, but uh, I I can say the first time that I heard Ross speak on the podcast previously about was it three months ago? That's more than that. It wasn't more than that. a little more than that. Yeah, first time I heard him listening. But point of the matter is, is when you told me he was going to be here tonight. I was like, oh, I remember everything about that guy. I remember. Did you ever, all, did you ever find that episode? Facts, everything. Just one sixty four. One sixty four. Yep. So you go back to 164. 164, Florida, Florida's warring past. Yep. There you go. So 164, 180. Well, everyone like... can thank Jim here for finding me uh, on the side of the road, my thumb out. <laughs> 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 At a historic site near you. Well, Ross, until we uh, drag you back in here again, I appreciate you joining us. We'll catch you guys next week. My okay. pleasure. Thank Adios. you. Adios.